0: Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English Literature and Film Studies at McEwen University, and this is the first in a series of episodes about fantasy film since the 1980s. So this is the first in a new series, but it's also the first, that, the first episode really since the very, very beginning of this podcast that isn't a lecture for my students during lockdown. So while the content remains academic, while it is still built in research that I'm doing and prep that I'm doing for courses that I'm delivering, these aren't lectures anymore. They don't have to sort of fulfill course requirements. Um, But they're still based in my own uh, investigations into fantasy film through Academic Voices, uh, years ago, uh, a friend of mine emboldened me to just be who I am um, in, you know, the midst of an internet full of, you know, uh, soundbites and influencers and information reduced to memes and all of that can be super fun and fantastic. Uh, she encouraged me to continue to be an academic voice about speculative fiction um, because there weren't that many out there. I came across a great one this last year. Uh, It's the Fantasy Animation Podcast, which is run by uh, two scholars, a scholar of fantasy film named Alexander Sargent and a scholar of animation, anime, uh, animated film studies or animation in general. I guess I can't say film because, you know, sometimes it's television, which to me is still film, but that's Christopher Holiday, And it's just, it's an absolutely fabulous podcast. They get some great guests in really some of the great experts in their field, and then on the flip side, they will also occasionally have in people who you know, made the films or were involved in the process in some way. So it's a really great podcast. Highly recommend it. If you're interested in fantasy film or in uh, animated films, you, you, you really can't go wrong. Their episode on Princess Mononoke is absolute gold. But I came across that podcast while I was prepping for a course on fantasy films from the 1980s. And, um, I, I used, uh, Alexander Sargent's book, um, Encountering the Impossible, the Fantastic in Hollywood Fantasy Cinema. Uh, so Sargent of the Fantasy, uh, Animation Podcast, uh, really great book, um, it takes a, a cool um, literary theory, th- theory approach to fantasy film. Uh, probably one of my favorite books that I used for my prep. Um, but I also did an, a, a lot of reading in Alec Worley's Empires of the Imagination, a critical survey of fantasy cinema from George Melies to... Oh, sorry, George Melies to The Lord of the Rings. And then finally, David Butler's lovely Shortcuts, Fantasy Cinema Impossible... Worlds on Screen. Shortcuts are a series of books that are about different aspects of film and uh, they you know range in topics from say mise-en-scene, something really broad in film studies, to the particulars of something like fantasy cinema or they also have uh, one on suburban fantasy cinema, the kind of thing that um, it, pr- are the the kind of films that are the antecedents for say stranger things um, by angus mcfadzine i'm probably mispronouncing that butchering that name Um, but these really great short uh takes shortcuts on these subjects so those were my three major sources and every source that i came across about fantasy film said the same thing about how Uh, academics approach it, or don't, right? Alec Worley in Empires of the Imagination says that serious criticism of fantasy cinema is astonishingly lacking, and uh, David Butler in that shortcut says fantasy is all too often dismissed as child's play beyond serious study. Um, The prevailing perception of fantasy, Butler says, whether cinematic or literary, as being mere escapism without any meaningful content or social function. Um, And I that's the experience that I've had, too. Like, when I first entered academia, um, or when I first started thinking about uh, entering academia, it was because of Alec Worley's book, uh, The Empires of the Imagination. I remember being in the Rutherford Library at the University of Alberta, and I really wasn't sure what I was going to do with the rest of my life, but uh, I had been thinking about going into teaching uh, grades 1 through 12, and there I was standing in the library in the film section, and I didn't even know there was a film section in the Rutherford Library. Up until this point, i had been mostly done uh, religious studies. And so I knew that there were sections on mythology. I knew that there were sections on literature. I'd seen the section on Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and, and other fantasists that were ostensibly literary enough to warrant attention, um, but then I stumbled into the film section and in that section, I found, you know, um, not only Empires of the Imagination by Alec Worley, but also Ann Bilson's amazing BFI, uh, British Film Institute's study of John Carpenter's The Thing. And it opened up this world of possibility where I suddenly realized that maybe I could be an academic who studied film. And that was really exciting to me, but finding Worley's book, which has, uh, a, sh- a, a shot from the Golden Voyage of Sinbad on the front cover Golden Voyage of Sinbad, one of my favorite nostalgia films of, of my childhood, problematic as it may be in terms of Orientalism. Uh, remains a sort of uh, guilty pleasure if we want to. You know, I know that people are always like, they don't have to be guilty. Well, we know what we mean when we say guilty pleasure. It's like eating salt and vinegar chips. Uh, whether or not I feel guilty about that is, is secondary. Um, but uh, I, I remember seeing that book and going, oh my gosh, somebody wrote about this. You can write about this stuff. And it, and it opened this vista up for me. But Worley's book was really about the only one on the shelf. That was specifically about fantasy film. There were some books that were about Lord of the Rings because Lord of the Rings, again, Tolkien is okay or was okay at the time um, to study from a literary standpoint. Not by any stretch of the imagination as... um, Say canonical, you know, as Charles Dickens or, or Jane Austen or um, James Joyce. Uh, but you still, I mean, you could teach Tolkien and, and people wouldn't be too upset about that. So you could certainly teach the films that were based on Tolkien. So there was some fantasy film work being done in, in that respect. But the broader um, study of fantasy film was still a very niche thing. Um, and, uh, you know, when I think about fantasy film, the idea that it has to have meaningful content or social function um, plays into how I approach film in general. There's a sense, actually, I think narratives in general. I did a, I did a TEDx talk some years ago where I talked about this idea of, you know, the literature, uh, the literary approach to reading um, narratives, to reading fiction. And there's always this sense that we have to, there has to be meaning. There has to be some deeper concept that we have to get out of the work. And it creates, and I may even said this in in an earlier episode of Triple Bladed Sword, that it creates a situation where we read or watch like we read or watch books and movies like they're all Where's Waldo but we don't know what Waldo is so if you've never seen a Where's Waldo book it's these these children's books with these really large um, splash pages lots of people big wide angle sort of shot or image perspective of uh, some space, you know, could be the interior of a mall, say and there's all these little people drawn all over the page and you, you, the child has to locate Waldo in the crowd. And Waldo's this, you know, white dude with glasses and a stripy sweater, red and white stripy sweater. Maybe he's Canadian, I don't know. But that's the purpose of a Where's Waldo book. And it's it's fascinating to me, it has been fascinating to me over the years to see how academia approaches reading works that don't have any intention to have, as Butler puts it, meaningful content or social function. Um, and I, I have, I have scholarly friends who would say, well, we can read that into it. We can always, th- there's always a political reading. There's always, a, you know, a whatever type of reading. And I don't know that I completely agree with that. I came across this uh, statement by Brian Atterbury. And uh, Atterbury is a giant in academics, uh, work on fantasy, uh, be it literary or film. Um, and he, he's talking about Lord of the Rings in his, uh, we want to call it foundational book, uh, Strategies of Fantasy. This is a book that, I don't want to say everyone who writes about fantasy and academia references, but many of them do. Uh, And Atterbury has this to say about Lord of the Rings and Freudian approaches. He says, Lord of the Rings can be accommodated to the Freudian model only as Cinderella's stepsister fit into the glass slipper with much distortion and more omission. But it wears the Jungian schema like a running shoe. And what, what he's saying is that there's a certain type of meaning that you can get out of Tolkien and Carl Jung's ideas of archetypes and whatnot seems to fit that better. Um, He goes on to talk about Marxist approaches to fantasy. Uh, He says, theories like Marxist historicism, which do nothing with Tolkien's text except proclaim its deficiencies, are shown thereby to be less universal than their practitioners are wont to claim. What I love about Atterbury's statements there is that he's, he's saying there are these literary approaches that people take to reading literature. Literary approaches, literary, th- literary theory, right? Freudian literary theory, Jungian literary theory, Marxist literary theory. And if you come at many fantasy films with those lenses, they will certainly be seen as mere escapism without any meaningful content or social function. But my pushback on that uses a, a, an essay by Michael Chabon called The Trickster in a Suit of Lights where he questions whether or not that's necessarily a bad thing. In that essay, Chabon talks about how literary fiction is held above other forms of fiction like fantasy, like science fiction, like horror, genre fiction, right? We've got this, this term that we apply to to romantic comedy or just a comedy in general, we say that's genre fiction and it's somehow lesser than these other types. Those are genre movies and they're somehow lesser than these other types. But academia can't ignore that in the last 10 years or 20, perhaps fantasy has dominated the box office. And you know, the, I know what the comeback is here that, you know, financial success is no guarantee of quality. no, Maybe it's not, but I think that if we're going to talk about film, and we're going to talk about fiction, we ought to be talking about, at least in addition to literary works, great works that have meaning and social function and whatnot, uh, uh, about genre works, about what we consider the trash that people are lining up for, because that tells us something about humans, you know, and where we're at as people. And I think that's important. But Shabon says this. He says, I would like to propose expanding our definition of entertainment to encompass everything pleasurable. I just love this. To encompass everything pleasurable that arises from the encounter of an attentive mind with a page of literature. I'm going to read that again. I would like to propose expanding our definition of entertainment to encompass everything pleasurable that arises from the encounter of an attentive mind with a page of literature. and And that could be and, in, and, you know, sort of an interrogation of the deeper meaning or social function of a film or work of literature. But it could also be an exploration of why that film is popular, um, popularity relating to the pleasure of viewing, to why we choose escapism or why we would choose this particular type of escapism. Those are Those are good questions to interrogate those are good questions to follow down their perspective rabbit holes so i'm not convinced that a film needs to have meaningful content or social function um in order to warrant our attention be it academic or otherwise um and i'm with alec worley uh, in in so far as him saying you know he, he hoped that his book could quote banish any single misconception about the fantasy if it could do any one thing he says it would be the idea that fantasy amounts to nothing but meaningless escapism yeah absolutely i'm with worley on that but i'm also uh in i'm also of the opinion that it could just be um uh, meaningful escapism and it would still be something worthwhile. I think if we learned anything over the last two years under COVID, it was that some meaningless escapism was essential to our mental health. You know, when things were at their lowest, being able to simply escape from that for a period of time was good for us. Now, earlier I said that this is going to be a series about fantasy films since the 1980s. And you might say, well, why would you start in the 1980s? Why wouldn't you go all the way back to the 1920s like you did when you did the series on horror films? And it's because horror films as a genre crystallized in the 1930s. Fantasy film as a genre didn't crystallize until the 1980s. You can go back to the 1920s and you'll find fantasy films like Nebelungen, which was split into two different movies, um, really epic fantasy film, incredible sets, beautiful uh, cinematography, and um, some really amazing physical stunts. The actor who plays the hero in Dinevelungen um, in the first of the two films. Uh, fights a dragon at one point. And this dragon is a practical special effect. Uh, it's a great big flamethrower inside a giant puppet costume. And this actor, who is not a stuntman, or he is his own stuntman, he's doing his own stunts, um, is right up there with that dragon. It's a really, really cool moment of film effect. And the director of the Nibelungen, Fritz Lang, went on to make another great work of... Speculative film, not fantasy film, uh, Metropolis, one of the, the greatest works of the silent era of the Weimar Republic, German film, um, you know, in the, in the silent period. Um, But at the same time, the Nibelungen, Die Nibelungen, did not spawn a bunch of copycat films. There was not a bunch of people going, well, now we'll make the same sort of thing. Uh, In America, in the same year, so Die Nibelungen was made in 1924. And the same year, there was a film made of a sort of Arabian Nights pastiche called The Thief of Baghdad. And it had, has some of the greatest special effects, again, of the period. It's hailed as one of the great fantasy films of all time. Um, it's, uh, of course, uh, white actors playing uh, Middle Eastern characters, and so that's problematic for modern audiences. Um, but again, it doesn't spawn a bunch of knockoffs of the same thing. We get another version of The Thief of Baghdad in the 1940s, but we don't get fantasy film as a genre. And even once The Wizard of Oz comes out in 1939, contrary to popular belief, The Wizard of Oz was not a success when it came out in theaters originally in 1939. It became a success when it was on television. That's not to say it bombed at the theater, but it wasn't a blockbuster. It didn't have the same kind of cultural impact that it would once it started playing regularly on on television and david butler says of these films he says yeah there were these early films but he says none of them gave rise to a sustained wave of live action fantasy films in the years immediately following their release and in post-war film Um, we saw a number of movies that were called wonder films, movies like It's a Wonderful Life and Harvey, a movie about a a guy who has a best friend who's a six-foot invisible rabbit. And in both those cases, it's Jimmy Stewart. Um, But there were a bunch of other wonder films as well, movies that were often romantic comedies, um, often about angels coming to Earth to help people get their shit together. And, uh, you know, these, were, they were called wonder films. They weren't called fantasy films. Although again, we sort of retroactively look back to those and say that they are, they get lumped into lists of the greatest fantasy films ever. And I don't think there's anything wrong with calling them fantasy. So long as we recognized again, that there really wasn't a sustained wave at that point. There wasn't a Uh, coherent genre that people said, oh, a new fantasy film. Uh, In the 1960s, we saw, you know, the the rise of um, Ray Harryhausen. I mean, he'd already made some other movies as well, but this is the guy who is known for doing great stop-motion animation. And uh, he started doing a a process that he called Dynamation, where he could have actors uh, interact with the stop-motion animated creatures, and so in Jason and the Argonauts, we get this um, famous fight scene between the heroes and uh, animated skeletons, and it was absolutely fantastic stuff, and then uh, Ray Harryhausen would go on to work on many of the Sinbad movies, Um, but again, it it gives rise to more sort of sword and sandal stuff, but that isn't always fantasy, and it's um, as much about the popularity of biblical epics around this time as it is about the effects or the adventure. Um, and 1960s, we also uh, also get live-action fantasy like Mary Poppins, uh, which, like Jason and the Argonauts, is wedded to animation but that's more that sort of disney children's film than it is again coherent fantasy as a genre um even once we reach the 1970s there's some really low budget films that get made in this period that we could maybe you know lump in with fantasy um we get the golden voyage of sinbad which i mentioned earlier in 1973 which again has these stunning battle sequences between live actors and these, uh, stop motion animation puppets uh, that Ray Harryhausen would animate. We also get Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory in 1971, which again shows up on these lists. And, And that was part of my process too, of like sort of figuring out which movies I wanted to look at was to look at these top, whatever, top number of, you know, top 100, top 50, top whatever films, fantasy films of all time. And then I would look for the repetitions. And initially, I thought about doing some of the films that I've already mentioned. I thought about doing Die Nibelungen. I thought about doing The Wizard of Oz. I thought about doing It's a Wonderful Life or, you know, um, Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. Because it's a serious film and, you know, it gives some gravitas to this study. But in the end, uh, looking at, you know, Butler's statement about the lack of a sustained wave of live action fantasy films i was like no we're 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 not we, we don't arrive there until the 80s so Willy wonka and the chocolate factory 1971 sort of an extension of the same thing that we saw with with mary poppins movies like chitty chitty bang bang children's films but not necessarily again fantasy as a sustained genre but Ian Hunter, who's quoted by Butler in Fantasy Cinema Impossible Worlds on Screen, says that since the late 1970s, the dominant genre of Hollywood blockbusters has been fantasy. Has been fantasy. And whether, you know, we consider, say, Star Wars as space fantasy or just straight-up science fiction, uh, it's there's certainly something interesting that happens right around 1977, um, you get Star Wars, which I don't think I really need to explain, save to say that it's uh, it's, a, it's a film that has all the aesthetic qualities of science fiction, space opera, but some of the narrative qualities of fantasy, right? We've got Space Wizard, Space Sword, uh, Space Dark Lord, um, things that, you know, you could pull directly from a work like Lord of the Rings. So that comes out in 1977, and the first poster for Star Wars was done by art, uh, some artists, two, two brothers, the Brothers Hildebrandt. A very distinct style, really saturated color palette, um, and that same year, uh, a, a, a paperback novel came out called The Sword of Shannara, uh, an epic fantasy by Terry Brooks. And this was the first book in an imprint of Ballantine Books. Um, it was the science fiction and fantasy imprint for Ballantine Books, uh, Del Rey books, named after the science fiction author and editor Lester Del Rey. And Del Rey had been interested in getting a, getting the opportunity to publish a sequel to *Lord of the Rings*, um, but the Tolkien estate wasn't playing uh, ball for all sorts of obvious reasons. Lester Del Rey certainly wasn't of the literary acumen to be the person to, to spearhead the follow-up to Lord of the Rings. Um, and and so Brooks talks about how Del Rey wanted him to do this. When Del Rey wasn't able to get the rights, he was like, okay, can you just change this up enough that <laughs> it can be its own book? And so the sort of Shannara is known... Uh, as you know, a Tolkien clone, a Tolkien knockoff. Uh, it was a beloved book of mine as a kid. But here's the thing I remember The Sword of Shannara when I was a child. So in 1977, I would have been six years old, and I remember seeing The sort of Shannara on um, in, in the checkout line at places like the Bay, the Hudson's Bay, which is a department store for those of you who aren't from Canada. Um, so I'm in department stores, I'm not in a, a bookstore. And in the rack at the checkout line, where today, you know, we get magazines and maybe an Archie Digest or something like that, um, Sudoku puzzles, uh, they used to carry paperback novels there. And the Sword of Shannara was in the paperback racks. And I remember it very clearly because the image on the front cover of three of the characters gathered around this glowing sword that's sitting inside a block of stone, very Arthurian image, um, was, was I, I, just, I remember seeing it f- uh, over and over. And then uh, the next, it was two years later, maybe the next year or the year after, it, it was released as a syndicated comic in the Medicine Hat News. So... Right next to all sorts of other popular comics like, uh, you know, Peanuts or High and Lois or Beetle Bailey or all these, these syndicated comics from back in the day, there was the Sword of Shannara. And that speaks to its popularity. It was a massive success. People wanted more Lord of the Rings and the Sword of Shannara provided that. Uh, I think Star Wars, right next to the Sword of Shannara, right there on that cover, again, the Brothers Hildebrandt's art on the cover of the sword of Shannara and inside there was art inside by, by the brothers Hildebrandt. And then this, the very same year, you know, they did their famous Tolkien calendar and 1977 Tolkien calendar. And that sold so well that they had a 1978 Tolkien calendar, which coincided with the release of Ralph Bakshi's animated version of the Lord of the Rings. And it's, it's just this moment, this, where fantasy kind of explodes. And it's, you know, it, was it? were we building to it? Was there fantasy before? Absolutely. There was literary fantasy all over the place. But you get this moment where there's the image of fantasy in the public consciousness, right? Wizards and elves. Um, And if you take a look at the cover of the Sword of Shannara and you look at the one elf who's holding a bow, he's wearing pretty much the same outfit that Luke Skywalker is wearing in the Hildebrandt poster for Star Wars. So there's there's a repetition of image, right? The wizard, Gandalf, for the Bakshi film, the poster for it, this looming figure with this giant sword. And then the again, the Tolkien calendar right on the cover. There's, there's Gandalf holding a staff in between two dark towers. Uh, a repetition of image over and over and over again. It doesn't shock me that within just a few years, fantasy explodes onto the screen, not as animated feature, not as you know, thinly veiled science fiction aesthetic, but as fantasy in its own right. As Alec Worley says, by the 1980s, fantasy films appealed to audiences through the technology of special effects just as much as sci-fi. Well, they appealed to audiences, but sadly, very few of the films of the 1980s were financial successes. And we'll talk about this more in upcoming episodes but for now, I just want to reinforce this idea of, of why am I starting in the 1980s? David Butler, echoing Worley, uh, says one of the f- this is that the 1980s is one of the few periods of sustained fantasy filmmaking in Western cinema. And Alexander Sargent, my third source, says in the, 19- the 1980s represents arguably the most dynamic period in the history of the Hollywood fantasy genre. Now, it's impossible to say what movie really starts it all off. I mean, we have to, I think we have to say it's Star Wars in '77. But what film comes out as straight up fantasy and then gets the ball rolling, lets everyone else know that this is financially feasible? It's arguably John Borman's uh, version of the story of King Arthur, Excalibur. Excalibur comes out in 1981, it makes money, and Not quite immediately, but shortly thereafter, um, indie filmmaker Albert Pyun, who'd been working very hard to find someone to let him make a fantasy film, uh, was given the green light um, by a small company. And he produced a film called The Sword and the Sorcerer. And we're going to talk more about The Sword and the Sorcerer when we get to talking about Conan, but I just wanted to speak to that as the power of, of... something being successful in Hollywood and what that does in a sort of trickle-down effect. Um, But aside from the films that we're going to be looking at from the 1980s, you can go through every year and you can find a major film that comes out that's straight-up fantasy. In 1981, not only do we have Excalibur, but we have Clash of the Titans, which would be the last of Ray Harryhausen's stop-motion animation Greek mythology films. Uh, one of my favorite films as a kid, although watching it as an adult, I cannot believe that I sat through that movie repeated times. It's a, it's a, it's a slow mover, but it's got you know all sorts of cool battle sequences with freaky monsters, and that just appealed to me as a, as a, as a kid. Dragon Slayer in 1981 features Vermithrax Pejorative, one of the greatest dragons to ever appear on screen. So three fantasy films all in the same year. So we, we have to know that those were working off of the success of Star Wars, but that it was excalibur's success that that really kindled the fires for other productions because neither Clash of the Titans nor Dragon Slayer were um, box office successes. Uh, Dragon Slayer was really cool to watch as a kid because. Um, you know, I, I had never seen a movie where, uh, the princess who needs to be rescued by the hero didn't get rescued by the hero. Sorry, spoiler alert, but it's a really old movie. Um, she's chained to this post, the dragon's going to come out and, and eat her. And I kept thinking the hero's going to come, the hero's going to come. Where's the hero? Where's the hero? Where's the hero? And the hero shows up late and finds her half eaten body. Uh, She's being consumed by baby dragons. Um, And then he kills the baby dragons. And it's just, I remember sitting in the theater going, I don't know how to feel about any of these things because I was only 10 years old. And I had never seen a hero of this nature, a sort of Disney style hero, right, um, do these sorts of things. The Dark Crystal came out in 1982. We're going to talk more about The Dark Crystal when we talk about Labyrinth in an upcoming episode. Um, Krull in 1983. More space fantasy. It is a terrible film, um, but it features Liam Neeson in an early role, so that's kind of fun to check out. Um, but I, I can't recommend it. I rewatched it a few years back, and I really just can't recommend it. It's uh, it's craptacular. If you just want to watch a movie to make fun of it, Krull's good grist for that mill. In 1984, we got uh, the never ending story made by the late, but great, uh, Wolfgang Peterson, who was responsible for, um, the German war epic Das Boot. Uh, he also made, um, the film Troy, uh, which isn't fantasy per se, but it's, it's in the, it's in the orbit. Right. Um, and, uh, the, the never-ending Story is considered a classic of fantasy film. It's not one of my faves, but I know that there are many people who absolutely love this movie, and Alexander Sargent does a wonderful reading of it in Encountering the Impossible. In 1985, a movie that I do love, um, unapologetically, and, and I know warts and all, uh, Legend, uh, with Tom Cruise and Sara and Tim Curry uh, in a tour de force role as darkness. He just walks around in these raised platform hoof boots with giant horns. He's straight up devil. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. He eats up the set. It's great stuff. Uh, In 1986, you know fantasy is popular when Eddie Murphy, who was one of the biggest stars of the 1980s, especially for comedy, uh, gets his own fantasy film called The Golden Child, which is a very bizarre movie where the white savior figure gets replaced by Eddie Murphy. Um, But he's being that figure for Asian culture. So it's filled with all sorts of stuff that I think would be very problematic for a a modern audience. But um, it was an interesting film and it at at, at the time. I remember liking it very much, thinking it was very funny. I also remember thinking that the effects were absolutely terrible. In 1987, we had Mannequin, a romantic comedy where a mannequin comes to life and a guy gets to date that mannequin. Uh, Content aside, you might say, "Well, what's that doing in here?" I mean, isn't fantasy about swords and elves? And and what's Eddie Murphy doing in a movie of that nature? Well, Eddie Murphy's uh, Golden Child fantasy was a modern fantasy, an urban fantasy, a fantasy that takes place in contemporary in the contemporary world. As was Mannequin. Mannequin, though, is the same kind of fantasy that reaches back to stuff like It's a Wonderful Life and Harvey, um, the Wonder film, the film that isn't about. Epic quests, but is still about the uh, the impossible, and that's the thing that differs. Like when we want to say, well, what's the difference between fantasy and science fiction? I think that science fiction plays in the um, at least the aesthetic toolbox of the possible or probable, and fantasy doesn't. It plays in the in the in the fields of the impossible. In 1988, one of the great fantasy filmmakers of all time tim burton makes beetlejuice um in 1988 the same year we get uh, tom hanks in big uh, a kid gets to become an adult and that too is is more like mannequin beetlejuice playing off of some horror elements but still firmly fantasy in many ways um, 1988, another great year. Uh, this is a great year for fantasy because we get Willow, uh, from George Lucas and Ron Howard. Ron Howard, the guy who had done some really serious dramatic film in the 1980s, makes Willow. It's not a great fantasy film. Um, it's wonderful for, wonderful for nostalgia. I have friends who love it. I have colleagues who love it. But it's, you know, it doesn't go on to spawn more films of its kind. In fact, if anything, uh, it becomes a textbook for Peter Jackson and his crew when they get around to saying, like, what we're going to do with Lord of the Rings is to not make Willow. Um, And then in 1989, we get Ghostbusters 2. Now, there was already Ghostbusters earlier in the... um, in the decade, I see Ghostbusters on lists of fantasy films, but I, I reject it as fantasy film because I think it's still it's still trying to use the aesthetic of science fiction, but you can't get away from ghosts as supernatural element being some form of the impossible. So that's uh, that's the 1980s, and that's why I want to begin the study of fantasy film. In the 1980s, rather than reaching all the way back to the earliest um, forms of, uh, the earliest examples of fantasy film. um, The movies that we're gonna take a look at in this series are as follows. The 1980s will be represented by Conan the Barbarian, Labyrinth, and The Princess Bride. For the 90s, we're gonna take a look at Candyman, which I know some of you are right away gonna say, but that's horror! And you're right. But it's also, when we've got supernatural horror, we have that overlap in uh, you know a Venn diagram of speculative fiction. Science fiction, fantasy, and horror are often overlapping. And Candyman, because it's supernatural horror, has that overlap for us. But there are other reasons I want to take a look at that movie. But it's, our, it's one of our 90s films. And then the other 90s movie is Groundhog Day and Princess Mononoke. It's the only animated feature on the list. Uh, and that has largely to do with Hayao Miyazaki being one of the great fantasists of, um, of our time. Uh, you could also say, well, Disney's one of the greatest fantasists of our time. And it's like, yeah, but then Disney gets his own series because there's a whole, like, I mean, Disney is, it's a whole different thing. It's a whole other part, uh, of, of the fantasy conversation. Uh, we're going to take a look at, For the 2000s, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, we're going to take a look at Harry Potter and The Prisoner of Azkaban. And in both of those cases, we're really looking at the trilogy of Lord of the Rings and then the entire Harry Potter series. But I'll be speaking directly to those particular films in the case of Lord of the Rings, because I don't think you can start in the middle of the narrative and not have people be confused with Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, because I think you can start there and not be terribly confused. And Alfonso Cuaron made the greatest Harry Potter movie of the series, in my opinion. Um, And then we're going to take a look at Guillermo del Toro's uh, dark fairy tale film, uh, Pan's Labyrinth. This is a movie that I did my master's thesis on, so I've watched it more times than I can remember, um, and I absolutely love it. I think it's one of the greatest fantasy films of all time. Um, and then finally, we're going to take a look at Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman uh, and interrogate the question of, you know, where do where do superheroes fit in fantasy film? Because some superheroes are mediated to us as science fiction, uh, you know, others, in the case of Wonder Woman as fantasy. We'll be taking a look at all of these films and upcoming episodes of Triple Bladed Sword. I hope you'll join me for the journey. Quest thing.